Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, critics, how y'all doing out there? This is going to be the expurgated version of Critical Q&A this week because I am on a schedule. My life has gone a little nuclear over the last couple of weeks because we are adding a move on top of the already crazy schedule I've had with full-time university study and keeping up a YouTube channel with content going up seven days a week. So I've been busy, and now I'm just kind of insanely busy and yet keeping up the video schedule because you guys are more important to me than, well, almost anything else. I can't say anything else because I do have my wife a little bit more. But anyway, uh, that is the situation. And so um, I will be doing five questions this week, which is uh, used to be the average. Then I bumped it up to like six or whatever. But anyway, we're going to do five questions this week. And that'll be our show. So let us not waste any more time. Let's just get right to it. Ross Day. I was listening to a lecture by Hubbard called The Deterioration of Liberty from 1956. He talks about how he spent time as a beat cop going into all sorts of places and fighting a, quote, Mexican man who was drunk and was high on marijuana. I'm sure there is little to no evidence for LRH actually being a beat cop, but if you know something on the subject, I'd be very interested to know. Okay, Ross, thank you for this question. And actually, I am going to turn to the Tony Ortega blog, The Underground Bunker, and a wonderful uh, write-up, which I am linking in the show notes here on YouTube and at uh, my website. This is from October 30th, 2017. And I looked this up because I had some vague recall, some recollection of this. Um but I thought uh, this was such a great and well-researched article from Chris Owen, who has done some really championship Scientology historical work, that I would just quote from this. Uh, because Hubbard was not a beat cop, okay? But I thought you guys would get a little bit of a kick out of how he exaggerated what he was and when what happened okay so cuz there are some quotes here that that uh, Owen put into this article that are that are very clear Hubbard was making very clear claims about being a cop he referred several times in his lectures and writings and I'm and I'm reading from Owen's uh, article here uh, referred uh, several times in his lectures and writings to his work as a police officer in Los Angeles in a lecture from uh, July 4th 1958 he told his audience I investigated the police one time. I became a cop. That's a direct quote. He said on a different occasion, November 22nd, 1956, that during the development of Dianetics, he thought it might be, quote, he thought it might be an awfully good thing to become a member of a police force for a little while to find out what they were scared of. And I did. Became a special officer in the Los Angeles police, as I just mentioned. I wanted to find where these vicious criminals were that were making them so frightened, end quote. Um, his purpose in becoming a police officer for a short time, he wrote in Professional Auditor Bulletin of 1954, was, quote, in order to observe criminality. In 1961, he told Scientologists that he had, quote, operated down in parts of Los Angeles, South Alvarado and Maine, and that sort of thing, quote, 
He described the area as the seamiest, lousiest, scummiest skid row in the world, where it's as much as your life's worth to go down there on a weekend, hang around those bars and gin mills and marijuana joints. They just stack up the bodies like cordwood. It's nothing. You pick up some guy in the corner and he's cut from ear to ear and bleeding gore all over the pavement. Nobody's paying a bit of attention to him. That is too usual, end quote. That's, uh, again, Hubbard going on painting this picture of what it was like down in the, uh, well, here's the other thing he said. Hubbard's beat was, quote, down on South Main Street among the gyps, griffs, and the dopes, the hopheads, and the tea eaters, and the rest of them. The lowest strata of humanity that comes across from the lowest strata of Mexico to mingle with the lowest strata of Los Angeles, end quote. So he tells a bunch of anecdotes and various things about how he was a special officer and how he was so good at uh, breaking up fights and uh, keeping the peace that they were trying, that they were basically throwing money at him, trying to keep him uh, from uh, doing this. And he said he found this hugely amusing. Um, and it, Owens right here uh, writes in this article, in a moment of perhaps unintentional honesty, Hubbard admitted, quote, boy, that's the biggest fraudulence I ever pulled in my life. Because the truth is that Hubbard was never a police officer in any way, shape, or form. He was an employee of a private company called the Metropolitan Detective Agency, which was founded in Monterey in 1936 and is still operating today. And it's a private security company. And what do they do? They patrol, they provide uh, patrol and guard services to the city of Los Angeles and businesses in different districts. So in other words, the big punchline here is that Hubbard was a security guard. And he called himself a cop, and he related these anecdotes as though he was a special police officer, and he wasn't. He was a liar. And this is just a great little example of how you can pull these quotes out of these lectures over the years that Hubbard just repeatedly paints this picture of this past fantasy of his life. While he was doing the security guard thing, he tried to um, pass off a bad check, got busted, got arrested, had to go pay a fine. At first, he pled not guilty. Then he changed it to guilty. He admitted he did it. And that's the sort of thing that's going to get you fired from a job like this or let go. So he didn't even he, he didn't even do this security guard job competently and well. He couldn't. He didn't have the moral character or fortitude to even be a security guard. That was L. Ron Hubbard. So that was why I thought I took this question up and thought you might find the answer enjoyable. So you can check out the full story at the link below. Lynn Ananda, at what level up the bridge does one realize that they are an immortal spiritual being? Is it OT8 or 9 and 10, which have not been delivered? Or can this realization be made prior to attaining any particular level or just happen at any time as you go up the bridge? Hey, Lynn, thanks for this question. And it's a good one, actually, because Hubbard actually was going way out of his way to try to deliver a, a sort of instant spiritual experience early in the 1950s. This was a big deal and a primary area of 
research and development, you could say, in the world of Scientology. Hubbard lectured on this extensively in about 19, between 1952 and 1955, when he then concluded that trying to go for the instant spiritual fix was not really working out so well. People weren't up to it, basically, is what he concluded, and that they needed lower-grade uh, processing first before they would be able to deal with themselves as spiritual entities. They're too enmeshed in their and the stress and trauma and, and the physicality, the reality of life in the physical universe and that this is got a lot more tying you down than previously expected or imagined. Uh, Hubbard's initial writings about spirituality or about us as spiritual beings have to do with uh, the fact that we are thetans. That's the word he used from the Greek letter theta. And that um, we are able to, we are completely separate from our bodies. We are completely separate from the physical universe as a substance. There's no such thing as as, alt, as extra dimensions or ectoplasm or or the spiritual realm or any of that. It's not. It's not like that. It's it's there's a physical universe which we are all imagining and creating collectively as a group illusion that we have come to believe in so hard, so much that we can't escape from it or let it go or just simply forget about it or, you know, change our mind. It doesn't, it's not that easy. Um, and this is why you need these steps of the bridge to total freedom that Scientology offers. But Hubbard's initial work on this was all about, like I said, trying to deliver this instant result. And here's how they would do it, is Hubbard would say he was looking for the one-shot clear or the one-shot exteriorization process, because for a while they kind of were, were uh, making these things the same or, or very, very similar. There was clear, and then there was theta clear, and then there was cleared theta clear, and then there was, uh, you know, cleared OT and whatever. There was all these, you know, labels banding about that really didn't mean much of anything. I mean, you dive deep into... Hubbard's work on this stuff, and it's all just word salad. None of this stuff was really very, you know, codified or or well figured out. It was just stuff Hubbard was was throwing around. Uh, but the one shot exteriorization attempt or effort resulted in a few different processes that Hubbard said would pop you out of your head and give you a certainty that you are an immortal spiritual being. That is why that's how, that's why I'm going on about this is because it actually directly addresses and answers your question. The command that Hubbard said worked more than anything else was there were two commands um, that I remember and he said he said there, if the first one didn't go, then the second one probably would, but they weren't perfect, they weren't great and also they weren't permanent. You could pop somebody out of their head. You could have them have, you know, cre you could create for them an out-of-body experience or an exteriorization event, but um, they're going to go back into their head. They're going to, you know, they're not going to stay out and they're not going to stay aware of the fact that they are, you know, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll remember that they are an immortal spiritual being. They'll have this, you know, oh my God, I'm not a body. I'm Look, I'm floating around. Oh my gosh, right? And this is supposed to be the thing that is the proof, the the you know the the solid evidence that you are a spiritual being is I can pop you out of your head and you, there you are, right? And so the command is be 3 feet back of your head. 
Okay, now if you are not right now three feet behind your head, <laughs> then the next, the other command uh, that would that would generally work is try not to be three feet back of your head. Okay, so those are your two commands, right, for exteriorization. There are many, many others. Hubbard in, uh, invented all kinds of processes to pop people out of their heads. There are some quite imaginative ones, actually, when you dive into the uh, Hubbard's uh, lectures and literature on this crap. But, um, but anyway, they're all just a kind of about trying to create that subjective experience of, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm out of my head which is actually an extreme case of disassociation, just so you know. It's not a good thing to be seeing yourself from a corner of the room or something. I mean, this is not how you should be living your life. This is, this is disconnecting yourself from the reality of who and what you are. Uh, so psychologically, this isn't, this isn't great, okay? I'm not saying it's damaging to imagine things, but I am saying that if you start taking your imagination as reality— and start living your life accordingly, then you might end up, you know, making some mistakes that you might regret. Okay, so anyway, just uh, to put my own clarification on that, but that is um, the answer to your question. Gern Blanston, do any wealthy Scientologists, instead of just being a public Scientologist, decide to work on staff? If they do join staff, would they still be able to pay for services instead of just depending on free services that all staff members get? Yes, from time to time, wealthy Scientologists will join staff or will be recruited heavily to join staff. And this is where a lot of the executive directors for many of the Scientology city-level churches have come from, is they're OT8s. They're trying to get the, the OTs, the high-level Scientologists, and most of them tend to be kind of wealthy or have a bit of money or figure that out because that's how they get to the highest levels of Scientology. You have to... You know, it's it is it does happen that non-wealthy middle class, you know, Scientologists will make it up to OT8. I have never seen an OT8, a person get up to OT8 who was just dead broke. You know, I've seen I've seen OT8 struggling financially because they got up to OT8, but they had to have some income and have some ability to produce and 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 make an income and make a living just to get there. So um, so it's pretty rare that you see people at the highest levels of Scientology who are not, you know, who don't have some money connected with them uh, or at least have had money connected with them. Uh, anyway, and many of them are urged to join staff. Some of them are commanded to join staff and some of them give in and some of them don't. Um, but that that definitely happens. And if they do, I have seen many times, uh, not just a couple instances, I've seen many instances of wealthy Scientologists joining staff and then basically paying the org's bills. I saw that in Twin Cities. I saw that in Las Vegas. I saw that in um, uh, Washington, mm, kind of. I wouldn't really I wouldn't really say that so much in Washington, a little bit. I saw staff paying org expenses there, but they weren't really rich. Uh, Orange County saw that. Um, Kansas City. Um, yeah, those are places I can think of right off the top of my head where I observed uh, that sort of thing occurring because these are podunk little places. There's no, there's no real activity happening there. If two people were to walk in the front door in the entire week, 
that might be like kind of amazing. I mean, that's the level of of of, of inflow of traffic into these organizations in these small podunk places. And so these rich people are recruited because they are high-level Scientologists. They're expected to bring their OT power and ability to the staff and inspire and motivate them through their OT-ness. And that is supposed to then have somehow pull off this amazing you know, expansion and victory and, and production for Scientology. It never works out that way. And then these poor schleps try to use Hubbard's administrative policies, which are a mess. And now, you know, Miscavige is claiming that he's got that all sorted out. Now they're pulling people for or they're going to be pulling people for executive training because now they've got it all sorted out. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) So anyway, that's kind of how that works. Barney Saunders. You said that, for whatever good reason, I was not fully re-indoctrinated as a cult member after the RPF. It did not have the intended effect. Why didn't it? Okay, Barney, um, there are probably a lot of reasons why the RPF did not have the intended effect on me. Um, It had effects on me, a lot of them. But the intended effect of the RPF is a rehabilitated Sea Org member who is back on purpose, ready to roll and, and, and enforce command intention. In other words, what David Miscavige wants, what L. Ron Hubbard wants, what David Miscavige wants. That's command intention. Anything they want, that's command intention. Um, the answer that I have for you today on this, and, the, and I've given it some thought, is that... Um, when I look back on my headspace before and after the RPF, what I can tell you is that I was terrified of doing the RPF, of being sent to the RPF. The RPF is obviously, you know, a known quantity or was a known quantity. If it doesn't exist anymore, we don't really know for sure. You know, we're, I'm, I'm, I keep being told the RPF doesn't exist anymore and people are just getting kicked out and... I, that could be, uh, that could very well be, but it definitely did exist for decades, and um, and it was uh, a a not a place you wanted to go, uh, not a not a not an experience you wanted to have, and it was something that I was terrified of as a punishment. It was the ultimate punishment in Scientology for me as a Sea Org member. You know, as a public or as a staff member, you're not going to get RPF, but as a Sea Org member, you can and. Quite a few people were on the RPF from time to time. I mean, when I landed on the RPF, there were upwards of, I mean, I think it was about 120 people on it. And on a base of, you know, around 1,000 people, that's one in 10. That's a lot of people, right, who are, who are on this RPF. Um, it was huge. And it was, and it was uh, populated by people who weren't even from the PAC base. They were from the INT base and they were from other, you know, FLAG and other, other places. Um, so I just, I just didn't want to ever have to deal with that. I thought that it would just be too gruesome. It would be too awful. I would, I would, you know, all that hard physical labor. I wasn't up to it physically. I didn't think I could, I could, you know, I didn't want to experience anything like that. And I would see people on the RPF and hear about people on the RPF and you'd see them kind of, you know, toughing it out and grinning and bearing it, you know, when they would see you, they, you know, nobody on the RPF is, 
is running around giving you know dirty looks or 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 standing around crying or or shouting or screaming or having you know psychotic episodes they're expected to get their nose down and get through the program and that was kind of my outside view of it is that it was this grindstone kind of program that you had to really endure and people were on it for a really long time. And I didn't think about how long very, very much because the RPF is not something that's in your face a lot. But I was in management and I was in I was on the, the razor's edge of being in a lot of trouble all the time. <laughs> that was part of the package of the Sea Org experience was that I was always freaking out about what kind of punishment was going to be doled out to me for whatever non-compliance I was currently guilty of because we would you know be getting all these ridiculous orders that I couldn't comply with and mostly due to time factors so you you get this order to send 20 people for training and you got 48 hours to do it you know come on it's stuff like that it's just ridiculous uh, and this would go on over and over and over again. So I was always, my point here is not just to, to, to you know, rag on and on about Sea Org life, but to make the point that I was always freaking out. I was always right on the edge of like, oh my God, my life's about to be over. I could get, re- you know, relegated off to this RPF. I won't be, see my wife. I won't see my friends. I'll be considered a lower class second scum citizen you know, an untouchable in terms of the caste system of Scientology. That's what the RPF basically is. And um, and I didn't want to have any part of that. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. Now, having painted that picture, I then landed on the RPF. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't happy to be there. And the fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, that for the first month that I was there, I was suicidal. Truth, that was, that's where my head was at. I was right on the edge. And I wasn't sitting around with a razor blade thinking about how to do it. It wasn't, that That wasn't how I was manifesting that. It was, you know, it was the complete and utter failure and the contemplation of this is it. This is all there is. This is, you know, this, I, I, my life's over. Basically, I considered that my life was over and um, that I had reached the end of the line. There was no more bottom. There was no worse place to go. That was where I was at when I landed there. And, and it took me a month to get my head sorted out. And I had to do it myself because, you know, nobody was really particularly interested in helping me. I mean, there was, there, you know, there's this sort of like, when you first land on the RPF, they're sort of watching you to see what you're doing and how you're going to act. And are you going to are you going to buckle down and just do this, or are you going to be a problem? Are you going to fuck around and and be a be difficult? And I didn't want to be the squeaky wheel. I've never wanted to be the squeaky wheel. Well, sometimes I've wanted to be the squeaky wheel, but in this particular case, I did not want to be the squeaky wheel, and so I wanted to just knuckle down and get through it. But at the same time, I was in this state of abject despair where I thought I pretty much felt like my life was meaningless and had and, and, and I had hit bottom. Okay, so after a month of running around doing ridiculous stuff, right, uh, of hard work and, you know, and labor and 
and trying to train and, and not really getting along with anybody and, and, and having a rough time of it, I realized, oh, I'm, I, I, this is what's happening. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm basically have been trying to kill myself. Basically. And, you know, not just, not just physically, but I mean, I mean, you know, from a Scientology point of view, I'm trying to get this across that it wasn't just about the death of my body. It was about the death of my existence. It was an existential kind of crisis. And it was, it was a real, like, you know, on the edge of, do I really, should I really be doing this or not? Is this something that's worthwhile existing, you know? But on top of that was all the crazy making Scientology, have to save the world, have to keep going, have to, you know, on top of it. So it was this push pull kind of thing. I'm trying to explain a, a very complicated headspace. Um, okay, so after a month of this, I came to realize just how screwed up where I was at, how bad it was. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. You know, uh, I need to I, I need to change this condition. I need to do something about this. I need to this, this can't be I can't keep going on like this. And I don't know exactly how to tell you what I did except to say I changed my mind. Um, sounds real easy. Sounds like no big deal. I, I, I wish I had better words for it because it wasn't either of those things. It was it was not an easy thing and it wasn't it was a big deal. It was a very big deal. It was a moment in my life I doubt I will ever forget. Um, and that was the point of turning things around. And then I started just, then I was, a, then I started getting out of my head. Maybe that's a way of putting it, is I started putting more attention on the outside world. And I wasn't so locked in on myself as an utter failure. Okay. Um, I, I imagine that that experience is probably very similar to what many people go through. Probably maybe everybody has to go through to one degree or another who ends up in a prison or in captivity or in some kind of a, you know, confinement situation is you have to come to a point of, of realizing that you've got to, if you're ever going to do something about your circumstances, you got to own it. You got to accept it. And you just got to have to start dealing with what's there in front of you. And that's basically what I started doing. And um, and then I just kind of started knuckling down and realizing that I'm going to have to just there, there's no other way out of this except to get through it. The the route of leaving the Sea Org, leaving my wife, leaving everybody I knew, that was not an option I wanted or had on the table anymore. I, I removed that off the table and I just went, OK, I'm going to get through this thing. And I proceeded to do so. And it took me three years, two more months from that point to do it. So it was it was a determined effort, you know, that had a lot of, it was a slugfest of, of magnitude. But where I'm going with all of this, why I'm going at such pains to describe all of this to you is because that was me. I did that. That didn't happen in an auditing session. That didn't happen sitting across from somebody having Scientology applied to me. And so therefore, I didn't credit 
Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard or any other Scientologist for that decision or for me, you know, kicking my own ass and getting myself out of that devastatingly awful headspace that I was in. I did that. And I knew I did that. And I didn't blame Scientology. I wasn't in that headspace. I wasn't in the place where I was like, fuck Scientology, yeah. But I was very much in a place of this Sea Org situation is a little nuts. This group of people is, this is not a good place to be. These are, this is crazy making. This environment that I'm in is crazy making. And there's a big difference between realizing that you're in an environment that is crazy and an environment that is crazy making. And that was sort of one of the shifts that I had along the line of, of now going in and confessing all my sins, right? I then proceeded to go into this line of confessing everything. I was like, okay, we're going to do this program. Here we go. They want a confession. Here we go. Let's confess. And I just, as soon as things were were being asked of me, I was doing the best I knew how to answer those questions as rapidly as possible, get to get through this thing. Still took me three years. But I was like, you know, I wasn't messing around. I wasn't interested in screwing around on this thing. And, and that's what I wanted to, and that's what I proceeded to, to try to do. I'm probably misremembering things as far as like, you know, my screw ups and getting sick and having this and that happen and all that. But for the most part, I was nose to the grindstone on this thing. That much I am absolutely sure of. And um, and the thing that the thing about hitting rock bottom, okay, where 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 all of this goes is that when you hit rock bottom and you know you've hit rock bottom and you know how bad it can get. After that, oh, and and you survive, okay, <laughs> right? You live through that. For me, what that did is it created, it, it, it released the fear. It released the terror, the, 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 that, that terror that I had had prior to going to the RPF, prior to having that whole experience happen. That all went away because I had lived through it. I did it. I survived. And I survived successfully. I didn't fail at that program. I'm, I graduated that program. I jumped through all the hoops. I did everything they asked me to do. And I complied. And I showed that I was tough enough to get through that. Which is, you know, not something that, that most people who end up on the RPF end up doing. Most end up leaving. There's a perverse pride in that. I've commented on that before. But the pride isn't from jumping through Scientology's hoops. The pride is facing my fear and living through it and then recognizing that those fears were not entirely unfounded. They were very well justified. The RPF was awful. It was, it was the worst experience of my life. I correctly was terrified of ending up on it because it was horrible. There wasn't anything wonderful about that experience except for the fact that it showed me that I could face the worst possible fear I've ever had. I could survive that fear and I could come out stronger as a result and I could see 
that I did that. Scientology didn't do that for me. It didn't help me. It didn't assist me in the process. It was despite Scientology that I got through that program, not because of it. And that knowledge is was was the, was one of the most basic fundamental truths or takeaways that I got from doing that program. Um, the RPF is not about personal empowerment. It's not about you know making puffing your ego up. If anything, it's the exact opposite. It is an ego-destroying, morale-destroying activity. It's meant to deconstruct and break you down in a way that even boot camps, like the worst Marine boot camp, have nothing on the RPF. The, the levels of psychological invasion that occur with you on the RPF are, are nothing. The, the Marines have nothing on what the RPF does to you psychologically. So uh, it's not even like a, a, a remotely similar comparison. Um, you are going to be invaded psychically, um, ethically. Um, yeah, it's just it's spiritually. It, it, every single part of your entire existence is just laid bare for the entire world to see when you're on the RPF. And there are no secrets. You have none. You have no rights to any secrets of any kind. You have no self anymore on the RPF. And somehow, from the very beginning, I dodged that bullet. And that's the best answer I can give you for why it didn't work on me, is because somehow, because of my circumstance and my luck and my unique perspective, because every, and I don't mean that like I'm on some pedestal, everybody's got a unique perspective. My own unique perspective hit that program, and somehow it didn't quite mesh, even though it kind of looked like it did. I went through all the motions. I did all the things. I did them honestly. You know, the, 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 the Sea Org guys who confronted me when I left Scientology and was starting to speak out about it Said, told me straight up that my RPF was a, was a joke and a disaster, and I, didn't, and I was not a product of it. And they were dead wrong. They were 100% wrong. I was, I was the best possible product because I could see how insane the Sea Org was, how crazy-making it is. And I still wanted to contribute to the motion of Scientology because I still believed that Scientology was capable of doing good. And despite the craziness of the Sea Org, I persisted in, in staying in the Sea Org for another, what, four or five years after I finished the RPF. So they got what they wanted in terms of, you know, me sticking around, but they got more than they bargained for in terms of, you know, me thinking independently because Scientology and the Sea Org especially are punishment-driven activities. They are all about pain and enforcing uh, or inflicting punishment on you in order to get you to do what they want you to do. And once you sort of escape that vicious cycle of abuse, once you kind of pop out of that and realize it is abusive and that 
I don't have to kowtow to your abusive threats anymore. Your threats don't really work on me anymore because I've faced my worst fears and nothing you're presenting to me is anything close to what I was imagining for myself and what I've already had to live through. So bring it. You know, you want to threaten me with, with, with uh, you know, for my non-compliance that I'm going to have to go scrub some dishes? Oh, oh, no, not that. You know, after you've tarred a hot roof in the Los Angeles summer sun of 120 degrees, going and washing some dishes till 2 in the morning isn't really that big of a deal. You know, after you've been hanging off the side of a building with no rope, no OSHA, nothing, you know. No safety guidelines really being paid attention to at all. You're risking life and limb to paint the side of a building, you know, after you put yourself through that kind of bullshit. You know, being told to go write up your crimes or being told, you know, you're going to have to stay a little late or being told, you know, that you're going to be on beans and rice is like, I mean, okay, you know, bring it. Like, what do you got? You know, you got nothing. And and that was kind of how I felt after I was off the RPF is I was like, Okay, you know, all this punishment, pain, bullshit, I'm just not down with it anymore. And I just didn't really care anymore about any of that. And and everybody else was still in that same headspace that I had been in before the RPF, where they were afraid of the punishments. They were afraid of being yelled and screamed at. They were afraid of, of all these horrible things that would happen to you that are very socially unacceptable, but the Sea Org is all about breaking boundaries and doing those kind of things to you. Well, after you've had your boundaries broken as far as they can be broken, uh, at least as far as you can imagine them being broken, and you're realizing that it's really no big deal and you're going to keep living anyway, and, no, and it's, and it's no, not really, you know, who cares, then those threats don't hold as much power. And that's that's basically where it's at. So there's my answer. I hope that that was informative. Shalane Orsak. Just wanted to know if you heard about the three-hour-long conspiracy documentary the My Pillow Guy put out about the, oh, my God, fraudulent election. Of course, no sane person is going to watch the whole thing. Just wondering your thoughts. I believe he went off the deep end a while ago, but now... Obviously, he's being supported by Trump, which I'm sure makes him feel pretty validated, but still, this is a little much. Okay, yeah, Mike Lindell and his conspiracy election fraud video, uh, which I was, I, I was very, I was, I was very humorous to me to see that the OAN network, which carried that as a paid uh, program, had to put a full-page disclaimer at the beginning of that documentary, which they read out loud. They don't just show it on the screen. They actually read it out loud to you that it, the, the OAN network and none of its affiliates or, or any of that have any responsibility for any of the content here. And we are not in any way, shape, or form saying that this is our views about things. And Mike Lindell paid our station to air this. And here you go, right? You know... When you're starting a documentary with that kind of disclaimer that you're on solid ground. And um, the thing about election fraud that hits at the heart of the American psyche or identity or really the entire system is, is really that, is that it does 
When you are claiming that our system of voting, the most sacred right Americans have as Americans is the right to vote. Every other right springs from that right. And if you can't see that, then you really need to go check out what our human rights are all about, where they come from, and why it is that our Constitution and our Bill of Rights are so important. They are built on the idea that the people of a country should have a voice in the motions and actions and activities of the regulation of that country, that nation. And that's a fairly radical idea in the history of people. Still, to this day, we take so much of it for granted now because we've had it our whole lives. But we really don't get, uh, so many of us do not get how special and important and very unique our government system is in the history of human beings being around on planet Earth and how we have chosen to organize ourselves. It is so much easier, faster, and really in many, many ways kind of efficient for a dictator to just kind of just run the whole show with some subordinates and and just, you know, and everybody just kind of has to do what they say. That's easy. That's a simple form of government. That's Anybody can understand that. And anybody can make that work, which is why it's been the most workable form of government for so long. You want to do something called democracy where you're going to get people involved and they all get a voice, even the people who don't know what the hell they're talking about, which is most people, to be honest. And... This is what you get, right? It's crazy. It's a crazy experiment, but it's a wonderful experiment too because it empowers all of us if we choose to act on that empowerment and 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 exert our rights, you know, through a, a, a smart and intelligent recognition and, and execution of them. And um, that's where we're where we're kind of having a lot of issues these days. Mike Lindell makes a documentary attacking the basic fundamental thing that keeps this country going, which is elections. And he says that they are fraudulent. And the reason why this is so dangerous, so devastatingly dangerous, is because it undermines our faith in our entire system. And it's not true. If it were true if you knew, see, here's the thing with Michael Lindell is Michael Lindell is just a, just a goof because he's chosen to believe, to go down a belief set, a path of extremist belief that somehow the Democrats have the power to overturn the, the presidential, the federal election process. It's, it's an asinine claim if you even spend a little bit of time looking into how much oversight, how much third-party work is done to ensure that the election processes state by state are kept uh, integral, you know, the, the integrity of the process is kept pure. And when you attack that, you're attacking the very foundations of the country. And that is dangerous rhetoric to be spreading around. Very, very dangerous. You want to disagree with a politician on some policy. You want to disagree with some social activist group, some lobbyist group over some single issue. Nobody really cares. It's like, okay, great. That's your issue. Go to town. 
But when you attack the very foundation of the country on which and on the thing on which it's built, then we're going to start having some more serious discussions about what you're doing and why. And um, and people who have gone on the fraud election route uh, are uniformly completely stupid on the subject. They are literally have not looked into it at all, or the looking into it they've done has been through some idiot's blog or through some Hannity's or uh, Tucker Carlson's editorial nonsense on Fox News. And those opinion pieces are trash. They are worthless, as is Rachel Maddow's, if you, you know, for those of you whose heads are exploding right now. Like all those opinion and editorial pieces that you see on the news and all that, they're all junk. And they should say so along the lower thirds of the TV show. They should say, junk, opinion, not news, not factual. Don't pay attention to this. You know, you don't need to have the news interpreted for you. You should just get some straight news. Anyway, I start ranting about all this. Um, it's just, I just wanted to highlight the reason why I see this as problem as a, as a problem, what, what Lindell is doing and what these Trumpsters are doing in pushing a voter fraud narrative is they are pushing a story that is incredibly self-destructive to our entire country. And more, more so, I believe than flat earth, 9-11 truthers or, you know, any of this other nonsense. Um, this is really, really serious stuff, and I, um, and I, and that's why I push back so hard against it. Why I think conspiracy thinking is is dangerous, um, not just something to be, you know, considered that something that kooky people do. You know, it's a it's a mind virus. These conspiracy theories are they infect people's minds and they infect them in dangerous and destructive ways. So that's kind of how I look at those things. Yeah, they're a big joke, and they are very, very easy to laugh off, and and they should be because they are ludicrous, they are ridiculous, and they should be ridiculed. Um, but they are also dangerous, and so um, we need to, uh, we just need to make sure that people really understand how the system really works versus all these fantasies about how they think it works, because. It's just not that simple. Anyway, those are some thoughts on it. Hope that was interesting in some fashion. And there you go. Okay, everybody. So that is our show for this week. I think I still ended up talking and talking and talking here at a usual uh, rate, even though we had a few less questions this week. Anyway, thanks for coming around and watching the show, guys. Um, yeah. And uh, if you if you're seeing long uh, delays in me getting back on your emails. If you're emailing me or trying to communicate to me or whatever, the reason why is because my time is not my own these days. And I'm hoping by mid-March, I will have things back into a regular crazy level of crazy than the complete tsunami of, of insanity that it is right now. Okay. Talk to you soon, guys. Bye-bye.